You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. We're now in the baseball season where the bobblehead doll remains king of the ballpark promotion. Why are bobbleheads still going strong? And can the city of Milwaukee be the bobblehead capital of the world? We'll visit with Phillips Glar of the National Bobblehead Museum. Looking for your favorite NBA broadcaster at a local game? You may have trouble finding him, particularly if you look at courtside. You might find him in a more distant location now. We'll visit with author and historian David J. Halberstam about what's driving this move. What was it like to see Al Kaline play his final game with the Detroit Tigers? We'll meet his final bat boy, Dennis Clotworthy, who saw it and has written a book about it. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran reports on more construction slow-ups with the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. That's all ahead on this week's edition of Stadiums USA Radio. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Although groundbreaking has yet to take place, taxpayers are already contributing to the future home of the Oakland Raiders. $4.6 million was taken in the first month that a new increase on hotel taxes went into effect. That money will help foot the bill for a new Las Vegas Dome Stadium that the Raiders will share with UNLV. The bulk of the money reported came in March from tourist and lodging facilities where tourists are paying about $1.50 more per night on their hotel bill. The host of popular sports talk WFAN in New York says his sources report the New York Islanders are headed for a new arena at Belmont Park. Craig Carton says the team's decision to move came down to three locations, the renovated Nassau Coliseum, an area near the Mets City Field, and Belmont. The state of New York will have the final say as it has authority to decide just who gets to develop the land near the former Belmont racetrack. The new arena for the Milwaukee Bucks is slowly taking shape. About 35% of the seating bowl concrete has been poured. Nearly 75% of the structural steel is now in place. The most dramatic part of the construction will come next month when the first of nine giant roof trusses will be laid into place. The yet-to-be-named arena is slated to open in time for the 2018-2019 Bucks season. And the NCAA has named host venue sites for the men's college basketball tournament through the year 2022. Among the highlights, the Chase Center in San Francisco. The future home of the Golden State Warriors will host the West Regional in 2022. That's the first time the city by the bay has hosted a regional round game since 1939. 
Bill, that's the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. A while back on this program, we introduced you to a gentleman who has a fantastic vision for the city of Milwaukee. He wants to make it the bobblehead capital of the world, and he has a great idea on how to do it, and that is by developing a bobblehead museum. And we wanted to get back with Philip Sklar and find out exactly how this is coming along. Phil, when we visited last time, you shared a wonderful visit. It was very early in the stage. Let's just start with where things are right now. What type of progress have you made? Yeah, we had a very successful preview exhibit downtown Milwaukee. We had the largest collection of bobbleheads ever assembled for public viewing. And that was over 2,000 unique bobbleheads, about a dozen exhibits, another um interactive activities for people to partake in and it was very well received. So that ended last year and right now we're transitioning to our permanent location which we are still finalizing but getting uh, much closer to uh, here in the downtown Milwaukee area. So we're yeah we're excited about that. Um, We have a lot going on. Bobbleheads are coming in every day from people across the country whether it's one uh, single bobblehead or a collection of 10 or 100 or in one case, 1,000, over 1,000. You know, we're uh, growing the collection and continuing to get closer to that milestone of opening the permanent Hall of Fame and Museum. You know what's great about this, Phil? There will never be a shortage of bobbleheads because every summer there is a new group of them that come online. As you know, we're going right now, we're early in the baseball season. You know there are going to be a lot of giveaways, and I would imagine you're already keeping an eye on what some of those giveaways will be. Yeah, um, we're actually working on a bobblehead of uh, McCovey Cove Dave, who... uh, catches balls on the fly or in the in the cove there in San Francisco, and he never had a bobblehead made. He was just recently voted fan of the year by uh, SportsCenter, so um, we were working with him on a bobblehead that fans will be able to get. So that's one of, uh, that's a fun one, but almost every team will be doing bobbleheads this year from the major league levels and uh, the minor leagues. There's, you know, the hundreds and 300, 400 plus teams, and there's a lot of creative and unique ones from the Cubs who are celebrating the you know, World Series moments, obviously, with uh, bobbleheads. I think probably the most popular one will be the final out with dual bobblehead with Rizzo catching the ball from Chris Bryant from Game 7 of the World Series. So that'll probably be one of the most sought after, especially because the Cubs are a hot ticket this year, even more so than previous years. There's just so much creativity. Mets are giving away a Cindergard Thor bobblehead, which is officially licensed by Marvel. You know, there's the Rangers are giving away uh, Adrian Beltre special bobble body. The Royals doing a George Brett, one that definitely will be popular with fans across the country. So, yeah, it's an exciting time of the year as the baseball season heats up and, you know, the bobblehead promotions start, start taking place. Phil, are you finding that you're having to work more and more as the rights issues for these types of products become more and more sophisticated? And they are. We know that. Uh, Does that mean you're kind of running through more hoops in terms of trying to not only access this, but to be able to show it? In terms of uh, the bobbleheads that are given away 
at stadiums, uh, the teams generally contract to have those made. There's a couple of different suppliers that they work with, and mm-hmm. there isn't really a licensing issue uh, with those because the teams sort of control their rights for promotional giveaways. There are more co-branded bobbleheads. For example, several teams are doing a Snoopy uh, retro-style bobblehead with the team's logos, and they'll work you know, with the... Uh, rights holders to secure those rights. Same with like Star Wars. There's been several Star Wars bobbleheads. Why does a bobblehead of all things work? Why this particular form uh, that people respond so positively to? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple reasons. They're so simple. They've uh, remained the same for so long. So there's that constant. They're fun. You know, you can wiggle the head and it's uh, just, you know, sort of fun to look at. And I think the other thing is just the fact that people like going to a game and picking up something that, you know, you can only get there at the game and comes with the price of the ticket. So you sort of get that added benefit, you, not only the game and the experience, but something to take home with you that, you know, you remember the game or remember the experience with. So I think it's sort of a combination of those things. Um, teams are adding more and more non-bobblehead promotions, but bobbleheads are still doing uh, and drawing in the most people, you know, like the Brewers are doing a Bob Euchre eight ball and the White Sox are doing a Hawk Harrelson alarm clock based off the Brewers uh, Bob Euchre alarm clock from last year that went <laughs> went over really well. So teams are mixing in a few other unique promotions to draw fans out to, to games, but bobbleheads still remain, you know, that king of all promotions. Phil, uh, a quick word now about how our listeners can get involved with the museum. How can they reach out to you and uh, perhaps get involved if they feel uh, fit to do so? Yeah, so we encourage anyone who's interested to visit our website, bobbleheadhall.com. There's information about pretty much anything bobblehead-related. Find out how to donate bobbleheads, see a comprehensive listing of previous bobblehead giveaways, so, yeah, that's Bobblehead Hall, H-A-L-L, the count. Congratulations on this continued success with it. And as I say, once uh, we move another chapter along in the process, we'll go ahead and circle back and check in with you and see how you're doing. But for the moment, Phil, congratulations with this and all the best. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Bill. It is a pleasure. Thank you, Philip Sklar of the Bobblehead Hall of Fame. A neat, neat idea. Coming up, the changing landscape of NBA arenas. That'll be the next topic. The radio play-by-play announcer is where? Well, not likely at courtside. We'll tell the story next on SB Nation Radio. Let's say you and your friend go into an NBA arena to watch a basketball game. You sit down at your seats and you look at courtside trying to find your favorite announcer only to find that that person isn't there, not at courtside at all, and you wonder where he is. Well, that person could be literally almost anywhere in the building, and that's what our story is about. David J. Halberstam, who's been a guest here before, former broadcaster for the Miami Heat. He does college basketball, a writer, a broadcast historian, and he did a wonderful item we highly recommend. Well, David, where are the announcers now? Where did they go? Well, 
they're certainly being moved, Bill. And uh, in the old days, when you and I did games in the NBA, for mm-hmm. the most part, we sat courtside. Yes. Uh, even radio. Uh, in some buildings, uh, for instance, at Madison Square Garden, we would be just above the player's ramp, but hardly a flight up and an excellent view and a vantage point uh, to call a game. But uh, they have now, or the league, as a general rule, not all teams, uh, the league finds it financially more fruitful to use the location down on the court, uh, which for years was really the inner sanctum of the media. They have now sold a lot of seats to the folks with the fat wallets who will pay for premier seating right down at courtside. Now, the fans can see that. It doesn't only involve the announcers and where the announcers are today, but Mm -hmm. you might occasionally see where the players' benches have been moved further and further past the baseline because they're using those seats along the sidelines or between the two end lines at courtside to sell at $10,000 a pop in some instances. Yes. What they have done is they've put the radio announcers in roughly two-thirds of the arena way upstairs. And what I try to point out, that in Boston, for example, they are so high up in the nosebleeds, Mm. uh, in the boondocks, and another zip code where you could virtually touch the roof of the building. Mm. And in Boston, the way it's configured the announcers cannot see the corner or one corner of the court. Wow. As such, when a player is taking a shot, you're uncertain as an announcer whether the shot is a three or a two. And that can be pretty frustrating. And certainly when you call games, as you've done and as I've done for years, you're not identifying players so much by number. You do it by look uh, by certain facial cadence or mm-hmm. um, certain aspects of, of the way person looks from distance. And when you're so far away, that way of identifying a player is, is absolutely impossible. So uh, it's very, very difficult. And I think these radio announcers have been put in a very difficult position. With the increasing need to build revenues to pay players and pay the bills. There are a lot of big bills to be paid here. Could we see a day when broadcasters themselves en masse are no longer in the building? I do think that day will come, and I think the day will come where it will get better for the listener or better for the fan in this sense that you may have a choice. You're sitting at home and you may say, you know what, I want a game with a color commentator only. I want a game with just the ambient uh, PA announcer and no other announcers. Um, I want uh, a game to, uh, I want to watch the game with two coaches, um, a sort of a second screen. I think those options uh, are, are more likely to occur, and I don't know where those people will be, but uh, technology uh, w- will advance, and it'll be uh, transforming, I think, uh, in, in many ways uh, of the way we, we view a game. It seems to me that it isn't limited to professional basketball, which was the focus here. I'm hearing that the visiting announcer positions at Jerry World 
aren't very good. The TCU's visiting broadcast booth for radio is virtually in the end zone. And it seems to be filtering down when they rebuilt the press box at Wrigley Field, for example. The original one was in the middle level. They booted it up to the top and, of course, made all that in the skyboxes. You don't have the type of broadcast seating that was there years ago. It's just not as good. I guess everything is uh, based on the conditions at hand. I know that many years ago, when I did my first book on radio sports history, when there was a team called the uh, Boston Braves, the old, uh, well, the team that's now in Atlanta and came there from Milwaukee, and they went from Boston to Milwaukee in the 50s. But Mm -hmm. when you did a Boston Braves game, you were in an open position. And if it rained, they'd have to throw some sort of plastic cover over the equipment. And (laughs) the announcers could electrocute themselves. So, uh, you know, things... Things do change. Uh, Vince Scully's first game, he did a college football game for the CBS Football Roundup, which was hosted by Red Barber. And Scully talks about how he had to stand outside on the roof uh, holding a mic that had a long extension, and he kept running from side to side on a walkway. It was it was wild. So in some ways it's gotten better, and, and in some ways it's gotten a lot worse. I mean, the quality of the sound of games, no matter where you are, because they uh, basically are transmitting based on uh, DSL lines, every game sounds good. In the old days, it would come in on the telephone line, and it would be uh, pretty much muddled. So things have gotten better, but I don't like the idea of uh, an announcer being asked to sit somewhere where he can't see a game and he's asked to paint a picture of it and he's got to wear a blindfold. Do any solutions come to mind in terms of a compromise that might improve some of these broadcast positions? Today, when you do a game, for the most part, you've got a play-by-play man, a color man, an engineer, and you have a statistician. So it requires four seats. Well, today, when you sit down and do a game, you've got a stat monitor there. So I don't think you really need a statistician. I don't believe in a color man for radio basketball. Um, I think the best radio basketball announcer I ever heard uh, was a guy named Joe Tate in Cleveland. Uh, No one could beat him in painting a word picture Mm -hmm. and doing it consistently for 40 years. He worked all alone. So you need a good play-by-play man. Uh, There are solutions, but I'm not sure it's a priority to the NBA. Uh, I don't think a lot of people listen on radio anymore, maybe in bigger cities, but I don't don't get the feeling that uh, listenership is growing. Radio is suffering, and Mm -hmm. uh, people have smartphones, and you can get the score instantly. You can get video of the game immediately. It's a different world, so I don't know that there's a solution that appeals to both parties. But I do know this, that the announcers have been told not to complain, certainly not on air, and not to complain Mm -hmm. uh, officially on the record uh, anywhere else. David J. Halberstam, our guest. If you haven't seen this article, folks, you should drop by and visit it. Awfulannouncing.com is where you will find it. A hearty congratulations on the story. Thank you, sir, and uh, continued success to you, Bill. Oh, and thank you very much, David. David J. Halberstam is our guest. Coming up now, we're going to dive into this week's stadium headlines. Mark Bedoran joins us. We will talk shop. That is next. 
on SB Nation Radio. Well, let's dig into a time to talk shop once again and stepping to the plate, Mark Madoran, president and creator of Stadiums USA. And a reminder before we get to Mark here, stadiumsusa.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information. Plus, you can listen to the podcasts of our program, test your knowledge, see if you swing and miss like I do on the stadium <laughs> quiz each week. Everything is available for you. So have fun with it like we do at stadiumsusa.com. Well, Mark, I can tell you about one group of people that aren't having a lot of fun. That's the folks who are scratching their heads in Atlanta trying to get that roof on the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the new home for the Atlanta Falcons, to work. And it sounds like there is more difficulty here. Mark, what's the update on this? Well, the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium is just about completed, but they are experiencing construction delays The never-before-tried roof design is what we feel may be giving them the issue, although they haven't said that officially. Mm -hmm. That opens like a flower or a camera iris, and it has caused them to uh, push back some dates. They originally wanted to open the facility July 30th with the Atlanta United soccer match that would take place there. But now they've canceled that, and they've canceled all the other soccer games. The first official date they now say will be August 26th, which is the first Falcon preseason game. And this isn't the first scheduling change they've had. As you remember, they pushed the opening back from when it was originally scheduled to be March 1st. Then they push it back to June 1st. Then they push it back to July 30th. Now it's August 26th. And you know that they're having some trouble because they have put a stop on the demolition of the Georgia Dome, which was scheduled for demolition in the near future. And they've said, let's just not do that right away. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling their backup plan is just in case that Georgia Dome is available. There are two college football games scheduled there September 2nd and September 4th. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to make some decisions fairly quickly about whether those games will be there or whether they'll have to move back to the Georgia Dome. Mark, every year, one of the things that we do pretty well is to keep people informed at playoff time regarding ticket prices. And here we are again. We've come around to that time of year. What are we looking at in terms of these prices? Well, you know, stars drive a lot of the ticket prices, particularly NBA, where one star can change things. For example, the Cleveland Cavaliers, before LeBron came back to Cleveland, Uh, the average ticket price was around $119. Since LeBron's been back, the average ticket price there has gone up to $385. So there is a huge difference. This year's playoff tickets seem to be relatively inexpensive. Mm. And we looked at what the cheapest tickets were in some of those NBA playoff cities. And you'll be surprised at some of the results. The cheapest ticket in the NBA, and remember, this is the walk-in price. It doesn't guarantee a seat. It's probably a standing room ticket. But still, Mm. just to get in the stadium, the cheapest ticket in the NBA is the, the Clippers at $18. Really? San Antonio surprisingly, is next at $19. 
Um, the most expensive ticket in the league is for the Blazers at $98, and the next most expensive is the Warriors at $95. Now, remember, these are the cheapest seats. You'll mm -hmm. be way up in the rafters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll need binoculars and a program to figure this one out. But <laughs> at least it gets you into the stadium and you're part of the action. Even the Cavaliers tickets, the walk-in price for the cheapest tickets is still only $27. So there are some inexpensive NBA tickets available for the playoffs. Now, if we go to hockey, things are a little bit different. Hockey tickets, the cheapest ticket in the league is going to be $34 for the Ducks. The Capitals are next at $42. Uh, double the cost of getting into an NBA game, mm -hmm. but still a very reasonable price to go see a playoff hockey game. The most expensive seats, though, for hockey are the Maple Leafs at $254 wow. and then the Oilers at 231 So there's a broad discrepancy between hockey and uh, basketball at this point. But you can still go to see a, a hockey game pretty reasonably if that's what you'd like to do. Mark, here's a story that I thought we would never be able to tell. Never. And finally, they have finished the minor league ballpark, which is the home field for the Hartford Yard Goats. This is on the near north side, that new Hartford North development. This took, well, I say more than a year. I think it's been a lot longer than that, but it I think is we've now. we've talked about this, Bill, for about two years. Yeah, that's, what it, that's about what I'm thinking. So uh, what's the story here? Well, we've watched this story for a long time. The Dunkin' Donuts Park, though, it is finally open. Hooray. Yeah. The Yard Goats have a home field advantage. The $71 million stadium in downtown Hartford, uh, home of the Yard Goats, mm -hmm. uh, had their home opener. The city is excited about the new venue. Reports are that the ballpark is really, really great. Uh, nothing but good things were said about it. They said it has the feel of a small major league park. It mm. has a lot of good amenities, a um, lot of things for the fans to do. Uh, the Yard Goats, by the way, are the double-A affiliate of the Rockies. Uh, Baseball-wise, they're off to kind of a slow start, but their attendance has been really good. Uh, their last game uh, at home, I think, was the 18th of April, and I saw the attendance was 3153, which is was pretty good for a double-A team at, at home. So yep. uh, good luck to the Yard Goats. Um, they were supposed to be in that stadium last year, and they lost virtually the entire season. The stadium was supposed to be finished the year before. And so uh, it's been a long offseason for the Yard Goats, but I'm glad they're, they're happy at Dunkin' Donuts Park, and we wish them well. Mark, let's roll back the clock now, step in the Wayback Machine, and look at some important dates in stadium history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week in 1934, the new Fenway Park <laughs> opens in Boston. Mm -hmm. Among the ballpark upgrades is a new center field, new right field bleachers, and the addition of the famous green monster in left field. 1964, the Mets opened their new ballpark, Shea Stadium, famous Shea Stadium, lots of history in Flushing Meadows. This year in 1968, the A's play their first game at Oakland Alameda Coliseum. Owner Charlie Finley has relocated his team to the West Coast, leaving their previous home in Kansas City. And that Coliseum is still in play for both the Oakland A's and uh, temporarily for the Raiders. All right. And now it's time, Bill, for your favorite section of the show, Stadium's USA Trivia. All right. Test your knowledge of stadium and ballpark trivia, and everyone can try it. Go to our website, stadiumsusa.com, and see how you do. Here's today's question. 
1992, the opening round of the NBA playoffs, rioting broke out in Los Angeles in the wake of the Rodney King police brutality case. You remember how uh, that received a great deal of press. Sure do. The unrest and uh, problems in the area forced the LA Clippers to move their home game against Utah to an alternate location. Mm -hmm. Unable to play at the LA Sports Arena, where did the Clippers shift their, quote, home game against Utah? Was it Pauley Pavilion on the campus of UCLA? Mm -hmm. Was it the Anaheim Convention Center? Mm -hmm. Was it the Long Beach Arena? Or was it the San Diego Sports Arena? Oh, boy. Boy, this is a tough one. On general grounds, I don't like the San Diego Sports Arena very much for a bunch of reasons. I kind of find it hard to believe that the Clippers would go back to San Diego. I'm going to take them out. Uh, I would say the Long Beach Arena is a no, so it boils down to the Convention Center or Pauley Pavilion, or as opposing teams used to say, Palsy Pavilion, because that's what <laughs> happened when they went in there a lot of times against uh, some of Johnny Wooden's great teams. I'm going to say it was in the Anaheim Convention Center. You are correct. Oh, You're on the oh yes. The Anaheim Convention Center hosted the playoff game. <laughs> they had an intimate 7,400 crowd. The arena is somewhat familiar for pro basketball because mm -hmm. the ABA had a team there, the Anaheim Amigos. Yes, sir. played in the convention center in the 1960s. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the week, Bill. Take care. Okay, Mark, we'll do it. Mark Madoran, we talk shop. Now, stay tuned. We have a very interesting story to tell about Al Kaline's last game with the Detroit Tigers at Tiger Stadium. That is next. Stay tuned on SB Nation Radio. The address Michigan and Trumbull in Detroit is a very, very special place in baseball history. That is the address on Detroit's west side of what we used to know as Tigers Stadium, or at one time Briggs Stadium as well. And a gentleman who grew up right next door to it and spent a lot of time in that ballpark as a bat boy has written a wonderful book called Al Kaline's Last Bat Boy. Dennis Clotworthy is the author, and he still lives in the Detroit area. Dennis, congratulations on the book. And uh, it has a very deep uh, tradition. You had to fight pretty hard to get a job with the Tigers initially as a young boy growing up and working in the clubhouse. You know, you went the whole route uh, from uh, everything that I've read. So you certainly earned it. How did you enjoy the experience? Well, it was uh, every boy's dream. And of course, in our neighborhood, we all had the hopes of one day obtaining a position in the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in 1972. Um, that year, the Tigers went on to play the Oakland A's in the American League playoffs. And I happened to be get the job in a visitor's clubhouse about halfway through the year. Of course, during that playoffs, when the A's defeated the Tigers to go on to win the 72 World Series, here I am in a visitor's locker room, 
My heart is broken because the Tigers were just defeated. However, uh, I have to put on a smiley face and uh, celebrate with the Oakland A's. Hmm. The likes of Reggie Jackson, Blue Moon Odom, Vita Blue, Gene Tennis, Bert Campanaris, Sal Bando, so on and so forth. So it was quite the experience to start off working in the uh, Visitors Clubhouse. Dennis, let's go into Tiger Stadium on the night when Al Kaline played his last game. You were his last bat boy. Take us to that moment, and uh, it's a very pointed story. Well, it was October 2nd, 1974. The Tigers were absolutely terrible that year and ended up in last place. And uh, on this day, you would expect a much larger uh, audience to be there for his final game. It was kind of a drizzly day, and believe it or not, just over 4,000 people showed up for that game, which Mm. I could not believe, Mm. taking into the fact that this was the last time anybody would ever see, Tiger fans would see Al-Kaline play. And uh, the game progressed unceremoniously, rather boring game to Tigers lost, 5-4. to At the end of the game, uh, within 10 minutes, everybody was pretty much gone. The only ones left in the dugout was myself, uh, Bill Fendero, who happened to be the ball man behind home plate. And Al Kaline was sitting in his uh, warm-up jacket about maybe 20 feet away on the bench. And Bill and I were conversing, but we really kept our voice to a minimum because you could see that this was a special moment in uh, Mr. Kaline's time. He realized that once he left that dugout, he was never going to play baseball again. And he was staring out into right field, and he was really just taking it all in, looking out to right field where he roamed for 22 years. After about maybe 10 minutes or so, he got up and got on the stairs of the the steps of the dugout and just took one last look. He kind of made a circle, if you will, looking at the entire stadium. And he started walking towards the tunnel that led up to the clubhouse. At that point in time, I don't know where I got the nerve, but I did. I called out to him. I says, Al, because by that time he told me to quit calling him Mr. K-Line. <laughs> and uh, I said, Al, he says, yes. He looked back at me. He said, yes. I said, would you mind if uh, I had took one of your bats as a keepsake? And he just smiled at me and he said, sure, certainly. Go right ahead. And so, of course, being the bat boy, he had two bats in the bat rack. Needless to say, uh, of the choice of the two bats, I did, in fact, take the one that he used in his last at bat during that game. So I am the proud owner of Al Kaline's last bat that he ever used. A gentleman, was he not? Yes, he was. He was human like all of us. And, you know, there were days he had bad days. But uh, in addition to that, he was a professional. He led by example. He wasn't a big rah-rah guy. He just went about doing his business as a true professional. You know, this is real life, Dennis, and I know as a young person how exciting it is to see the players coming up and having great success. It's interesting how real life really came front and center to you in this experience. I'll bet as a young man, you learned an awful lot at an early age. You couldn't have said it better. You know, when you're around professionals, just because there's 25 players on a team 
they're all different individuals. They just happen to have talent that most of us don't have. Mm -hmm. But there are so many personalities, and you really learn to adjust to those personalities, even as a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kid. You know, there, there are parts, believe it or not, just because they're baseball players, uh, there's professionalism that takes place. You know, when Jim Campbell would happen to stop by the clubhouse or the manager, the respect they had for the manager at that time was Ralph Houck or the senior players like Kaline and Freehand, you know, the younger players who were only three, four, five years older than I was at the time. When I was 17 and 18, there were players on the team that were 21, 22, 23. And they too looked up to the elder statesman, if you will. And so it was a learning experience. And I had the good fortune of going on to work for the Tigers after that for approximately nine more years mm -hmm. uh, in the front office in the ticket department. And that experience at a young age helped me to be respectful to those in the front office. And as I moved my way, you know, trying to climb up the ladder, if you will. Dennis, you have a fantastic story. Good luck with the book now and the continued sales of it. Al Kaline's Last Bat Boy. Dennis Clotworthy, thanks for the visit. Appreciate it. Thank you much. Author Dennis Clotworthy, our guest, talking about Tiger Stadium. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying we hope you enjoyed it. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead, so don't run away. It's coming your way right here on SB Nation Radio.